we're going to be jumping into part two of our series, which we're calling, Why Should I Believe Anything the Gospels Say About Jesus? Everything that Christians believe is built upon the claim that Jesus was crucified, died, and then three days later rose from the dead proving he was God. Even the Bible itself embraces this reality. In the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 15.4, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes, if Christ, that's Jesus, is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And many Christians can share reasons why they believe Jesus rose from the dead, but for most Christians, they use the Bible as the source for all of those reasons, which puts a logical burden on Christians to be able to explain why we should trust what the Bible says about Jesus. Why should we consider it to be a legitimate source of evidence? And so we're spending a few weeks taking a look at the historical and logical reasons why we should believe the things the Gospels say about Jesus. And when we talk about the Gospels, we're talking about the four books in the Bible that specifically document the life of Jesus on the earth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This series that we're doing is based on an outstanding book by Mark D. Roberts that was published in 2007 called Can We Trust the Gospels? And I'd encourage you to pick that book up if you want to get into even greater detail on this subject. And just in case you're thinking, well, Jeff, why don't I just get the book and read it then? You should get back to preaching something else. But a friend of mine told me a story once. He, he showed up for a CrossFit class and he looked at the workout and the whole day's workout was running. So he looked at the coach and he said, running? That's stupid, I can just do that at home. And the coach wisely responded, yeah, but you won't. And he said, touche, and he went off and did the workout. You see, we're a church that believes the Bible is the word of God. We're people who build our lives upon what this book teaches, and so we better be able to explain to somebody why we trust what the Bible says. And I would guess that most of us have been meaning to get around to studying this subject for years. And so that's why we're taking time on a Sunday to do this. Because even though I realize that we could all go buy the book and read it, most of us will not go buy the book and read it. And you know that I speak the truth. So I'm glad we have the opportunity to do this and go through this together. Last week we looked at the issue of why we can trust that the gospels we have in our Bibles today are faithful reproductions of the same gospels that were written in the back half of the first century. We also looked at why we can trust their authorship, who wrote them. And then we looked at why the two or three dozen other gospels are not in the Bible and cannot be taken seriously from a historical perspective. This week we're gonna look into the question, what sources did the gospel writers use? Where did they get their information from? Now you might be under the impression that the gospel writers simply wrote down their own recollections of Jesus. But there's actually a lot more to it than that, in a good way. Any historian looks for sources beyond their knowledge, even if they went through an event personally. They'll interview other witnesses. They'll comb through other published accounts of the event. This is what responsible historiography always entails. When 9-11 happened, the writers at the New York Times didn't say, we don't need to talk to anybody, we don't need to interview anybody else because we were there in New York when it happened. 
As we shared last week, two of the four gospel writers were not eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. Mark's gospel is considered to be based on the recollections of Peter, who was an eyewitness, but it was somebody else who actually recorded what the gospel of Mark says, while Luke's gospel was written by a man who never met or knew Jesus. However, we do know for certain that Luke made up for his lack of direct knowledge about Jesus by carefully making use of historical sources. In fact, Luke tells us this himself at the very beginning of his gospel. And I put this on your outline, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke starts his gospel with a prologue, which is something similar to what any legitimate ancient historian would have done. And he writes, inasmuch as many, underline the word many, have taken in hand, and then underline, to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as, and then underline all the way to the next comma, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having, and then underline, had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Did I ever tell you guys about the time that I was almost named Theophilus? Did I tell you the story? No, I didn't tell the story. So when I was born, my parents were actually 99% sure that I was going to be a girl. And so they didn't even have a name picked out. And so I was in the hospital and uh, the doctor came in because this is the time back when the husband couldn't be in the delivery room. And he came up to me and said, well, what name do you want me to put on the birth certificate? And my dad said, you know, I, I don't know. We, we thought he was going to be a girl. So I haven't really put that much thought into it. And uh, the doctor said, well, what about Theophilus? And my dad said, wow, this is a, a biblical name. We've got a man of God delivering my child. How cool is this? And he said, Theophilus, I'm, I'm just curious, why, why would you suggest the name Theophilus? And the doctor said, because that's Theophilus looking baby I've ever seen in my life. True story, true story. Anyway, but while we don't know exactly who Theophilus was, our chief interest in today's study are the sources that Luke identifies. So take a look in just these four verses here. Take a look at what Luke claims. I had you underline the word many. So the first thing he says is he says, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. What that means is he's saying many people have written down an orderly account of the events concerning Jesus. So here's what this tells us. It tells us that Luke consciously drew from more than one or two or three written sources about the life of Jesus. So make a note of this, because this is huge. Luke tells us that at the time he wrote his gospel, there were many written accounts of the life of Jesus. People had written down many, many things already. There were written records of the life of Jesus, but not complete, entire written records, most likely. Secondly, then Luke mentions those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. In the original language, the phrase delivered them to us refers to oral tradition, the practice of passing down stories and knowledge verbally from one person to another. 
ministers of the word refers to those who preached and taught. So Luke tells us there was a thriving oral tradition about Jesus, which was passed on by preachers and teachers. But these weren't just any old preachers and teachers. Luke paid particular attention to those who based their preaching and teaching on their own eyewitness experience of Jesus. So write this down. He's talking about the apostles. The apostles were the source of a thriving oral tradition about Jesus. A thriving oral tradition about Jesus. Thirdly, Luke says that he reached the point of having, quote, perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Here's what that means. It means that Luke actually read the many written accounts of Jesus studiously, and he made an effort to sift through all the oral traditions. He interviewed eyewitnesses as well, and Luke makes the claim that he is a thorough historian who's done his scholarly homework, and he has come up with a complete understanding of the life of Jesus. So write this down. He had done the research and work of a diligent historian. He had done the research and work of a diligent historian. And then lastly, Luke tells us that the goal, the purpose of him doing all this research and recording it in this gospel is so that Theophilus, quote, may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. In other words, that Theophilus may know the truth about Jesus. So make a note of this. His goal was to make the truth about Jesus plain to Theophilus. The truth about Jesus plain to Theophilus. Luke wrote his gospel paying close attention to the sources at his disposal so that the reader might have confidence about who Jesus was, so that the reader would know everything that's in here has been researched, it's been checked out, it's been verified, so that you can know who Jesus was, what he did, and why he matters. And Luke actually writes even more about why Jesus matters in the sequel to his gospel, which is the book of Acts. Let's talk more about Luke's written and oral sources. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, some of you will know, are often called the synoptic gospels, because they include many of the same miracles and teachings, often with a very similar wording and in a very similar order. The word synoptic is related to the same Greek word from which we derive our English word synopsis. A synopsis is just a summary or an overview of something. John's gospel is pretty different. It was written last, most likely a couple of decades after the third gospel was written. And while everything it says is consistent with the synoptic gospels, it has a very different flavor, but that's likely because John was just a very, very different dude. He was a mystic who was very different from the other disciples. Now, unfortunately, none of the gospel writers named their written sources, and scholars have spent centuries trying to figure out what they were, especially for the Synoptic Gospels. And I could share with you all the different theories scholars have about what those sources were, but it's very detailed, it's not very interesting, and it doesn't really change anything. So if you want all that information, read the book. But here's the bottom line. The Gospel writers used other sources that were written down and passed down via oral tradition. There were multiple eyewitness accounts contributing to the Gospels which gives us even more reason to trust their contents. Make a note of this. Matthew, Luke, and John, and possibly Mark, based their writings upon older sources that were written within 15 to 30 years of Jesus' death. 15 to 30 years of Jesus' death. 
They didn't just make things up from scratch. They didn't just stop with remembering things as best they could. They used other sources to jog their memory and talk to other people as well to get complete accounts. The second century church leader Papias, who we met last week, described the history of the Gospel of Mark in a way that is curiously similar to the prologue that we just read of Mark's Gospel. This is Papias' description, it's on your outline. Papias wrote around 130 AD, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, though not in order, whatsoever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterward, as I said, he followed Peter, who adapted his teaching to the needs of his hearers, but with no intention of giving a connected account of the Lord's discourses, so that Mark committed no error while he thus wrote some things as he remembered them. For he was careful of one thing, not to omit any of the things which he heard and not to state any of them falsely. So Mark, who was not an eyewitness of Jesus, depended on sources, in this case primarily the things he had heard Peter teach. Peter perfectly fits Luke's description of being one who from the beginning was an eyewitness and a servant of the word. Whether Mark used additional sources besides what he learned from Peter, we don't know, though it's certainly possible, and nothing in the Gospel of Mark conflicts with the Gospel of Luke. So I want to make sure you're connecting the dots here. Luke is a thoroughly, thoroughly researched account with many, many sources. Some of the other Gospels may be. But what Luke says lines up exactly with what all the other Gospels say. That's why they're trustworthy as a package. Luke was not the only New Testament writer to refer to the process of oral tradition. I think we mentioned this last week. The Apostle Paul does as well in his letter to the Corinthians where he describes receiving and then passing on oral traditions about Jesus. This verse should be on your outline. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, for I delivered underline delivered to you first of all that which I also received, underline received. So he's saying I passed on to you what was passed on to me. And then he begins to speak here and deliver a church creed that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the 12. Here's why this is a big deal. Paul wrote his first letter to the church in Corinth in the early 50s AD before any of the Gospels were written. This means that within about 20 years of the death of Jesus, we have clear evidence that the early church was passing on oral traditions about Jesus. Write this down. Paul provides evidence that within about 20 years of Jesus' death, Christians were passing on oral traditions relating core Christian theology. That's very, very close in terms of history. We also notice that the wording of this oral tradition Paul mentioned sounds stylized. It's what was called, as I mentioned, a creed. A creed is something that's designed to be memorized and passed on exactly. It's like a clever rhyme. It doesn't work if you pass it on to someone and it doesn't rhyme anymore. It has to be delivered exactly and accurately. Paul himself is delivering to the church in Corinth the exact wording of this creed which was given to him. Now this doesn't mean that all of the early traditions about Jesus were memorized and passed on verbatim, but it does suggest that that sort of thing could and did 
happen. And it was important to the early followers of Jesus to pass on that information accurately. That's why they put it in the form of a creed. Now, following the death and resurrection of Jesus, his early followers passed on stories about him and the things he taught. And as Luke mentions in his prologue, this often happened through preaching and teaching. The fact is that the culture that Jesus lived in, the culture that the disciples lived in, the culture of the early church was predominantly an oral culture and not a literary one. People told and remembered things much more than they wrote them down. And that's because most people, 99% of people, could not read or write. The rabbis were well-trained and highly skilled at memorizing and passing on the oral Torah. They would have memorized the entire first five books of the Bible. They would pass those on to their disciples orally, and their disciples would remember what they said, and the disciples would also remember the rabbi's thoughts as well, their commentary on those scriptures. That's how it worked. But even first century Jewish pop culture was based around oral traditions in the synagogue or whether it's at the family dinner table, whether it's other religious gatherings or parties or educational settings or wedding receptions, people told stories and they quoted bits of wisdom that had been passed on to them. The whole culture was based around an oral tradition and people were really, really good at it. And this is the culture in which Christianity exploded. Eyewitnesses of Jesus told what they had seen. Communities of Jesus' followers heard, remembered, and passed on what they had been told. And this meant that Luke and the other gospel writers had a wealth of material available to them just from what had been passed on verbally between Christians. So make a note of this. The gospels were written in a time and place where the culture was dominated by oral traditions. The culture was dominated by oral traditions. But how do we know we can trust the oral traditions of that time? You might be thinking, well, anybody can pass on a story, but usually among my social circle, by the time the story's been around three times, things have grossly exaggerated. Somebody's gone from breaking their arm to being murdered or something like that. So how do we know that we can trust their ability to pass on things accurately? I'll get to that in just a minute. But I first just want to share something with you that I saw this week on TV. I was watching a, an old episode of the show Mythbusters with my kids. And by the way, the two main hosts of that show are avowed atheists who think anyone who believes in God is an idiot. But this was the episode where they were doing uh, Archimedes' death ray, the myth of Archimedes' death ray. And the myth is that Archimedes came up with the idea of having all of the soldiers aim their shields at invading ships, thereby harnessing the sun's reflective power and igniting these invading enemy ships, burning them into the water before they could ever reach the shore. Really, really neat story. So what happens in the show is they try it, they use mirrors, they do everything they can, they can't reproduce the result, and the myth is busted. But at the end of that segment, it was very interesting because the two hosts, Jamie and Adam, take some time to tell you, the viewer, how seriously they take history. And they shared that it was amazing because the ancient historian who wrote about this battle 
was actually able to interview some of the soldiers who had fought in that battle. They were still alive and he was able to talk to them. And then they also shared that it was 300 years later when the first accounts of fire being used in that battle enter the historical record. There's no record of fire being used in the earliest records. And so they said, for this reason, we have no reason to think that this ever happened or was even attempted. And that's actually the correct way to evaluate historical records. You place great weight on eyewitness testimony and you esteem older accounts as accurate over contrary later accounts. The Gospels were thoroughly researched. They relied on eyewitness interviews of people who walked and talked with Jesus. They relied on eyewitness oral testimony and eyewitness written records. And two of the Gospel writers were eyewitnesses themselves. And I just want to make sure we understand that in any version of history, not just biblical history, in any historical event, that's about as good as it gets. That event that they were talking about could only match that level of excellence if the historical account had actually been written by soldiers who fought in the battle. The gospel accounts are even better than that because two of them were written by people who were actually there. And as I mentioned last week, this is also why we disregard all the other so-called gospels who teach contrary things about Jesus because they were written 60 to 200 years after the four biblical gospels. All we're asking people to do is to evaluate the biblical gospels the same way that the world's best scholars evaluate all ancient historical texts. And as we said last week, if you're gonna throw out all the evidence that's for and in the gospels, you basically have to throw out our entire knowledge of ancient history because there's really no event in ancient history that has better sources than the gospel accounts. So some critics make the claim that because oral tradition was involved in the writing of the Gospels, they can't be trusted. Because, you know, those oral traditions must have become corrupted by human error and the hyperactive imaginations of the early Christians. And to illustrate their point, they'll use an analogy that I used last week, the old children's game of telephone. And if you've ever played that game, you know that by the time the message reaches the last person, the message is usually hilariously corrupted, completely different from the original. Now this analogy doesn't actually prove that the oral traditions about Jesus can't be trusted. In fact, the limitations of the analogy will help us understand why we can put our trust in the oral traditions about Jesus that are found in the Gospels. Let me unpack this for you so that we can understand it. The game of telephone works and is funny for one main reason. We're terrible at memorizing. We are terrible at memorizing. We don't memorize very well because let's be honest, we don't have to. Just consider the case of phone numbers. When I was a kid, I probably had close to a couple of dozen phone numbers memorized. I could call my home, I could call my dad's office, I could call my friends, the surf report, all from memory. But technology advanced and produced phones that now remember all those phone numbers for you. Now I have to literally strain to remember my wife's cell phone number. Because I don't actually know it. It's just programmed into my phone and I just hit the picture of her face. I don't even know what her phone number is. And yet people can be trained to memorize stuff, even in today's visual technological culture. My children memorize poetry. Most of them, even Ezra, who's five, have 
about 10 to 12 poems memorized. Some of them are four to five verses long and they have a memorized verbatim. It's incredible what the human mind can do. The early followers of Jesus lived in an oral culture in an even greater way than we live in a technological culture. As I said, only a tiny percentage of people could read or write. Only the wealthy had access to libraries and literature. So people needed to have good memories. They remembered stories, sayings, scriptures, etc. Their oral culture had lots of places in which crucial information like religious stories would be passed on faithfully, verbatim, word for word. Teachers and storytellers were expected to pass on the things they knew accurately with a tiny, tiny bit of freedom. And since they did their work in community gatherings, if the person telling the story or sharing the scripture or sharing the quote did so incorrectly, the community would hold them accountable and correct them and say, no, that's not how it goes. It goes like this. Playing telephone at a party in the first century AD would have totally bombed because by the time you got to the end, the message would be exactly the same as it was at the beginning because they were all great at memorizing the total opposite of us today. Write this down. The cultural context meant that the average person was highly skilled in the art of memorization. The average person was highly skilled in the art of memorization. Continuing to use the game telephone as an analogy, let me ask you this. Who was at the beginning of the chain of the Gospels? Who's the one providing the original message? It's Jesus himself. Jesus himself. And remember that to those who followed Jesus, Jesus was a possible Messiah, the Savior of Israel, the one who was going to bring God's kingdom to earth. His followers didn't just see him as a wise teacher. But they saw him in some ways as the very embodiment of the wisdom of God. And the earliest Christians confessed Jesus to be Lord, not just a good leader or a good teacher, but God in human form. That's how important they believed he was. That's how important they believed the things he taught them were. They had so much motivation to remember the things he said because they believed he was God or possibly a Messiah before they even reached that point. They had so much motivation to transmit the things he said accurately. They weren't just playing games at a party. For these reasons, I'm sure that lots of average everyday Christians were passing on stories that they had about Jesus and the things he did and the things he taught. I'm sure they passed them on to their friends and to their children. But this doesn't mean that just any old person could get up and share a story or a teaching they remember Jesus saying when the church got together. It doesn't mean that Billy Bob could stand up one Sunday and be like, I remember this one time Jesus said that if we have enough faith, we can eat whatever we want and we won't get fat. And everybody said, thank you, brother Billy Bob. Add that to the record, please. That's not what happened. That's not how it worked at all. Don't forget Luke's claim that he had received these traditions from those who were, quote, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. He's talking about the apostles, the apostles specifically. Most specifically, the apostles who had been with Jesus during his earthly ministry. These eyewitnesses, these apostles who had been set apart by Jesus himself were the official players in the game of Jesus' telephone. 
What they taught, what they shared, is what was passed on and shared as oral tradition, not what Billy Bob claimed that he had remembered. So write this down. The apostles were the origins of the oral traditions about Jesus. It was not a free-for-all. The apostles were the ones generating the oral traditions about Jesus. Another reason to trust the words of Jesus as being passed down orally accurately is their form. Here's what I mean by that. One of the reasons the telephone game works is that the sentence being passed forward is usually intentionally hard to repeat verbatim. If the person starting the game of telephone used a short poem that made sense and had an obvious meter and rhyming scheme, the odds are much higher that by the time you got to the end of the chain, the message would still be pretty accurate. Many of the sayings of Jesus were similarly easy to memorize. Some involve striking imagery that you don't soon forget, like it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's actually pretty easy to remember because it's such a striking image. Other things Jesus said use only a few words to make the point, like you cannot serve God and wealth. Others use parallelism of some kind, comparing one thing to another. For example, the house built on sand versus the house built on the rock. And of course, many of Jesus' teachings were delivered in the form of parables, short stories that have a way of sticking with you. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you can probably tell me the gist of most of Jesus' parables if I started you off. Hey, tell me the one about the, uh, the talents, which is that one, or about the sower, or about the four soils. If you've been around the church a while, you probably know the gist of most of those things because they stick with you because they're in story form. The reality is that oral tradition is not about people just talking and then trying to remember what they were told. It's an art, it's a skill, and they were very, very good at it in the time period between the life and ministry of Jesus and the writing of the Gospels. The form of many of Jesus' teachings help memorization tremendously. Just think, if you're trying to memorize the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, Think how much it helps your memorization that every line begins with the form, blessed are blank for theirs blank. That's the structure all the way through. And that form is going to help you memorize it much, much faster than if it didn't exist. And then consider the example of, of the miracle stories in the Gospels. They almost always have the same structure. There's a statement of the problem, a brief description of the miracle, and a statement of the response. It makes logical sense, but it also conditions the mind to remember and be able to pass forward these stories faithfully. Just as we remember certain jokes because they have a familiar form, like knock, knock, or a rabbi, a priest, and a minister walk into a bar. You know, not that I know jokes like that, but most of you do probably. So write this down. The form of many of Jesus' teachings and miracles facilitates easy memorization. The form of many of Jesus' teachings and miracles facilitates easy memorization. Then we also find that the community of Jesus' followers also acted as a protection against false rumors and information in the years following Jesus' time on the earth. Imagine with me that you had a favorite English teacher in high school. I wonder how many people are thinking of Dead Poets Society right now. They're like, I did, I had this teacher who ripped out pages of books. Oh no, that, that was a movie. So imagine you had this favorite English teacher in high school. This teacher was great, and, and he loved the poem 
Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night by Dylan Thomas. And this teacher also had several quotes that every student knew because he used them on students over and over and over. And he was an incredibly fair teacher, tough but fair, and everybody kind of loved him. Now imagine very sadly the day comes when this teacher dies. In the days and weeks following his death, you and your classmates, you'd get together and you'd talk about him. You'd reminisce about the things that he used to say and how much he loved that one poem. You'd share your grief over your loss and your joy over the fact that you got to know such a great teacher. And together, your combined stories and your recollections would reinforce your memories of that man because you would remember an event and then somebody would mention a detail about that event that you had forgotten. But as soon as they said it, you'd be like, oh right, I remember that now. And so together as you talk about these past experiences, your memory is becoming more and more solid, more and more detailed, more and more accurate, more and more full. So now imagine if during that time, somebody tells a story in the group that contradicts everything you and your classmates have remembered about him. So imagine if somebody says, yeah, you know, the only thing I didn't like about him is that he, he played favorites. Or someone says, oh man, he really hated that one poem, do not go gentle into that good night. What would happen? The group would correct that person, right? They'd say, no, that's, that's totally wrong. That's, that's not how he was. That's not what he said. And he actually, he loved that poem. Your community would ensure the basic truthfulness of the oral traditions about your beloved teacher. And that's exactly what happened in communities of Jesus followers in the years following his death. Not only were they led by recognized leaders who had walked with Jesus and heard his teachings, but the whole community created a place where people could share their memories of Jesus and have them weighed and corrected by the community and the leaders who had actually walked with and heard Jesus teach. So that together and collectively, their memories of Jesus and the things he said and taught were solidified, wrong ideas were corrected, and everyone's memory was made stronger and more detailed. Sometimes you'll hear skeptics talk about the period before the writing of the Gospels and the death of Jesus. They'll talk about those 20 years or so as if it were just a free-for-all of oral traditions where anybody could be inspired by the Spirit to attribute any saying they want to Jesus. The problem is there's not really any evidence at all that that happened. And there's a ton of evidence that it did not happen. This is what Bergner Gerhardson, who's one of the the greatest scholars and professors in New Testament reliability who's ever lived, here's what he concludes regarding the oral tradition about Jesus. He says, my contention is thus, that we have every reason to proceed on the assumption that Jesus' closest disciples had an authoritative position in early Christianity as witnesses and bearers of the traditions of what Jesus had said and done. There's no reason to suppose that any believer in the early church could create traditions about Jesus and expect that his word would be accepted. Gerhardson's observation is confirmed by the fact that so much in the oral tradition, this is really interesting, so much in the oral tradition about Jesus doesn't reflect the needs of the early church. He points out that you can trust what they're saying is accurate because their memory of the things Jesus said and taught didn't make their lives easier. 
in the years following the death of Jesus. In fact, if they were making stuff up, we should expect there to be much more helpful information on some contentious issues because if there's a contentious issue, someone would just go, oh, you know, I remember Jesus said something about this which would settle this dispute. But that's not what happened. There's not all the extra information that would have been really helpful on things like the relationship between Jews and Christians, on keeping the Sabbath versus meeting on Saturday, or woman in ministry, or participating in pagan festivals, or hiding your faith under persecution. You see, if they were making stuff up, somebody would have made something up like, no, remember this one thing. Jesus said it's what is in the heart that counts. So if you're going to be murdered for your faith, it's okay to pretend that you're not really a Christian because it's what's in the heart that counts. Somebody would have made something like that up, right? When the Romans are coming around, burning your town and feeding you lions. If they were making stuff up, that's when somebody's going to make something up, right? Or somebody would have said, oh, Jesus actually said, no, it's cool. You don't have to worry about the whole tithing thing. Somebody would have made that up if they were making stuff up, I guarantee it. But it didn't happen. That's not what we have in the Gospels. The fact is, the community of Jesus' followers carefully conserved what he had said, making sure that the process of oral tradition was faithful to what Jesus actually said and what he did not say. So write this down. The community of Jesus' followers served to protect the truth and correct falsehoods from being spread about him in the years following his life. Protected the truth and corrected falsehoods. In the game telephone, the sentence is passed on secretly, right? It's whispered from one person to another. But imagine what would happen if you changed the rules and had every player instead say the message out loud to the next person in the chain. That'd become a really boring game because even us with our terrible ability to memorize would be able to each step correct the errors, right? Somebody in a group of eight or 10 would say, no, 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 you're a word off there, get it back on. And by the time we reached the end, it would probably make it accurately. That's more or less what happened in the early Christian community when it came to passing down the teachings of Jesus. It wasn't done secretly. It was done openly. Remember that Luke got his information from eyewitnesses who were also ministers of the word. These apostles were preaching and teaching Jesus in public and in churches. Their stories about Jesus, what he said and what he did, were public record. When you think of how little material actually appears in the Gospels compared to everything that Jesus must have done and taught and said, it's obvious that the ministers of the word, the apostles, tended to repeat themselves a lot. The same stories about Jesus were told over and over and over. Now, given the variation we see in the Gospels, these stories weren't delivered exactly the same way every time, but the core main part was the same. This would show up in, in little areas like when the original Aramaic of Jesus was translated into Greek, there might be a word or two different, but no change to the meaning at all. But the point is still that the members of the earliest churches would have heard the same things about Jesus taught over and over and over again in much the same way that they were told by the first eyewitnesses. Repetition always makes it easier to remember something, even precisely remember something. I don't know if any of us have actually found a better way to remember things than repetition. It's the best method there is. I can say the Lord's Prayer because I've repeated it so often over the course of my life. Just as I can quote the entire dialogue 
of far too many incredibly stupid movies because I've watched them so many times over the course of my life. The early Christians came to know a core group of the things Jesus said, a core group of the stories about him, because they heard them and repeated them over and over and over. Write this down. Early Christians heard the sayings and stories of Jesus repeatedly, in public, and in churches. They heard them repeatedly, in public, and in churches. Well, if you want to lure people in, there's not many better ways to do that than offering to share a secret with them. As we mentioned last week, there was one tradition in early Christianity that prized itself on having secret teachings from Jesus that were not widely known among Christians. This was the core feature of Gnosticism we talked about a little bit last week. When mainstream Christians objected and pointed out that these Gnostic teachings didn't actually come from Jesus, the Gnostics responded by claiming that the divine Christ had reappeared and revealed secret information to only a few new disciples. And they claimed that they were the only ones who had received these secret teachings and they were only gonna pass them on to a few elite people who were capable of receiving these revelations, thereby appealing to people's egos. And they wrote many of these secret teachings in these other gospels we talked about last week in the second and third centuries. These are known as the Gnostic Gospels. All the reasons that we have to trust the oral traditions around Jesus are exactly the reasons that we should not trust anything that the Gnostic Gospels say, among other excellent reasons we covered last week. The only reason they come up again and again in culture is because people are always drawn to the idea of being in on a secret or discovering a conspiracy. All serious academics and scholars agree that the Gnostic Gospels were written long after the four biblical Gospels and were not written by the people that they claim wrote them. They're fakes, and any good historian will tell you that. But I, was, I just got to tell you, I was astounded. I was on YouTube this week. If you put in Gnostic Gospels, just like endless lectures in rooms full of people about the secret teachings of Jesus that the church doesn't want you to know. And you have to be such a terrible historian and so irresponsible to stand up and teach like these are legitimate things when everybody knows they were written 60 to 200 years after the primary sources about Jesus and are completely fraudulent. But to this day, people want to believe what they want to believe. I grew up going to an elementary school and some middle school in an outer suburb of, of Cape Town, South Africa, a beautiful coastal town called Fishhook. And when I was in school, we were still taught the Lord's Prayer verbatim. And we'd say it at every school assembly, always in a way that sounded like someone had died. You know, our Father who art in heaven. I remember it so vividly, hallowed be thy name. And uh, when we started learning it in the first grade, I I'm sure we made all kinds of adorable and amusing errors. I'm sure that if you go on YouTube and you type in Lord's Prayer and kids, you'll find videos of kids making all kinds of adorable little mistakes with the text of the Lord's Prayer. But because the goal was for me and all the other kids to learn it correctly, we had to learn it verbatim, word for word, perfectly accurately. And our mistakes were gently corrected until we got it right. And because of that, I can still recite it perfectly to this day. And now some of my kids are learning it verbatim as well. In much the same way that the early Christians, and especially the teachers, 
They made sure that the words and teachings of Jesus were carefully, although not slavishly, preserved. They didn't just laugh and chuckle when there was a big mistake and go, oh well, close enough. They cared. They cared a lot more about getting it right than my teacher did about teaching us the Lord's Prayer when I was in the first grade. And while they might have done some different things, like use the Aramaic word for father or the Greek word for father, they didn't give anybody a pass when they accidentally recited Hollywood be thy name instead of hallowed be thy name. They corrected them and they said, that's not right. They remembered what Jesus said and they made sure it was passed down accurately. This is the last thing I'm going to share on this. So if the idea of the early Christians memorizing the contents of things like the entire Gospels, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, if the idea of them being able to accurately memorize all that stuff still seems impossible to you, despite the cultural context, the, the people, the community, and the oral tradition of the time, if that still seems far-fetched to you, let me give you an example that proves this point from today, the day that we're living in. All Muslims are expected to memorize major portions of the Quran, but many go on to memorize the entire book, which contains more than 80,000 Arabic words. That's bigger than the New Testament. The one who does this is called Hafiz and is highly regarded among other Muslims. A man or a woman can become Hafiz in Islam. Muslims claim that there are millions of Hafiz alive today. So what enables a Muslim to memorize the entire Quran? Well, firstly, the religious life of a devout Muslim is inundated by the recitation of the Quran. In other words, the religious life of a devout Muslim is surrounded by people speaking out the Quran all the time. And this repetition is easy to memorize because much of the Quran is written in a poetic structure. And when they go to uh, meetings at their mosque, they will chant it in a specific rhythm that helps you to memorize it. And of course, the, the respect that you get if you can become Hafiz serves as a great motivator for people as well. But the greatest motivation for a pious Muslim is their belief that the Quran contains Allah's own words. You see, to the Muslim, memorizing the Quran is internalizing the very words of God. That's the greatest thing that motivates a devout Muslim. In a similar vein, the early followers of Jesus had both the ability the motivation, and the community around them to pass on an oral tradition with accuracy. We're not even claiming they could memorize the whole Testament. We're just saying the content of the Gospels, which is far less than the length of the Quran. The combination of cultural context, the skill of memorization that everyone around them had, the form of the teachings of Jesus, the community, it all helped them to faithfully remember what Jesus did and said. And a study of the gospel shows that the early Christians did this with incredible success. So when we combine the first century dating, which we looked at last week for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we combine it with the fact that there were oral traditions about Jesus springing up immediately following his return to heaven, when we see that early Christians were faithful in passing on these traditions, even forming them into creeds so that they could be passed on word for word with total accuracy, we find ourselves with a convincing case and rationale for trusting the gospels
what we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John accurately represents what Jesus actually said and what he actually did. We might not have the original Aramaic words of Jesus except in a few cases, and we might not have the original first Aramaic stories about him, but we do have Greek translations that faithfully reproduce Jesus' actual words and deeds. The bottom line of today's study is that the gospel writers use written and oral sources in addition to their own memories and recollections. And those sources were reliable. Luke especially did a thorough investigation and because Luke did such a great investigation and the other gospels line up with what he said, we know that we can trust them as being historically reliable, consistent with written records about Jesus, consistent with oral traditions about Jesus, consistent with the eyewitness testimony of Jesus. Everything adds up. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you again for your word and, and thank you that we know that there is no way that you would come to the earth and lay down your life for us and then do anything less than make sure that we know exactly what you did for us about your love and about your sacrifice and about the gospel and about the cross. So thank you for getting the message to us. Thank you for preserving your word. Thank you that... Every time they find an ancient manuscript, it lines up with what we have today. And thank you that against all kinds of opposition, your word stands and it endures and it always will. Not one word will pass away. And thank you that it doesn't just mean that in the literary sense that you preserve the text, Lord, but not one of the words in your word will pass away not one of them will prove to be untrue. The promises that you gave your followers are still true today. You're still the God that never leaves us and never forsakes us. You're still the God that is with us always, even to the end of the age. You're still the God who has gone to prepare a place for us that where you are, we might be also. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And thank you that we can trust your word and the hope and the future that it promises us, Jesus. And so we put our confidence in your word and in your promises and in who you are, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. 
Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.